us to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. In the book of Daniel so far, we've seen uh, that God is speaking to Daniel through various ways, through dreams, through visions. Um, But this morning, we kind of turn a corner where we have last week in Daniel chapter 7, which I told you I was very nervous about teaching Daniel 7 because there's so much to it and it's all prophetic. It's all this uh, vision of animals, these weird animals with wings, and they have these different attributes and they're unlike anything we've ever seen. But the main point of Daniel chapter 7 is to look at these kingdoms that God has allowed to exist in the world that he created, man's kingdoms, that are really like ferocious beasts and they're destructive, and they're swallowing up other peoples and nations, and one kingdom comes after another. But there's hope, because at the end we see that all of these ferocious kingdoms that seem to be bent on destruction, and destroying, and taking over, and power, and greed, are all bringing us to a point where God's kingdom is going to, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. God's going to set his kingdom right. He's going to set up his authority, his dominion, his control, his power on this earth. At the end of all of these destructive nations, he's going to bring a nation that uh, rules with righteousness and perfect justice. Everything that our hearts long to see on the news that we never see is going to be coming to fruition with Jesus Christ as the leader of this world. And so, Last week, Daniel's vision of beasts, earthly kingdoms, leads to Jesus' eternal kingdom. And uh, his kingdom will come, and his kingdom will be done. His authority, his rule, his reign. So, so far, all the way up to last week's chapter, it was written in Aramaic, the language of the world at the time. And God was speaking these prophecies to the world. He wanted the world to know that he is in control He wanted the world to know that even the kingdoms that exist that are ungodly, it doesn't mean that he's okay with them. He allows them to exist. He even raises up rulers from among the the sea of people that exist on the earth. And he's in control of that, even though sometimes we might question that. You know, God, why would you put this guy in control? Or why would you allow this guy to have authority? He's wicked, or he's, you know, not as wicked as this guy. But, you know, in, in all these gymnastics we do when we look at politics, but we have to trust God. And trusting God when everything goes the way that we think it should is one thing, but trusting him when things seem completely chaotic and out of control is a whole nother deal. And so we see these kingdoms, and then we see Christ's kingdom come in. And as his kingdom comes in, it, it brings everything around to where it was always supposed to be from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. When, when God created the heavens and the earth, created all the animals, he created the sea and all the fish and, and crazy animals that are described there, and then Adam named them. Then out of Adam's side, God created woman out of man. And then as a result of that, we had two people that were given a close relationship with God. And God told them one thing, don't eat from the tree. And along came the serpent, which we know was Satan tempting Eve. And she succumbed to the temptation. She ate the fruit and nothing has been right like it was supposed to be since. Paradise was lost. 
So now all everything works against us. Uh, right now, what is against our homes? Uh, these little Asian beetles that we call ladybugs. Uh, that's just a reminder that the fall has happened. Uh, even when we get sick, these bacteria, that, these things in the air, pollen, it attacks our immune system, it attacks our, our throats, we have allergies and all these things, all signs of the fall. But God is going to make those things right at the end of all things. And so in chapter 8, we have this next vision, which is called uh, or regularly referred to as the vision of the ram and the he-goat. If you read the King James Version, it, it says the he-goat. It just means a male goat. So let's start in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. After the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. So you've, you've seen rams probably. Uh, we just got rid of our St. Louis lambs that were called the rams. You know, they, two big horns, and many times when they mature, they kind of curl all the way around. But when you see them on National Geographic or any of these channels, what are these rams doing, especially the males to one another? They're doing what deer are doing right now. They're fighting for territory. They're fighting for prominence. And so this ram is no different. It's, it's looking for somebody to challenge. And every time one comes to challenge, he starts scraping the ground, and they run at each other, and they go, bam! Just like, you know, middle school kids that think that they're going to show that they're stronger than somebody else. But it's kind of futile, right? Uh, they run at each other. They beat each other up. But there's always another competitor going, well, I can beat you. Think about some of the fighters and the boxers of the past. You know, you can become the, the champion of the world at boxing, but there's always going to be some young kid that shows up and he goes, well, I want to challenge you now. Or if you ever watched WWF, which eventually became WWE wrestling, or any of the other initial wrestling, you know, there's always this, this mouthing and this drama going on. Uh, who's the greatest in the world? Uh, it used to be Hulk Hogan back in the day. And you had Macho Man Randy Savage and all these guys that, you know, they were, you know, and, and then we find out later it wasn't real. Ugh. So who was really the champion? No one will ever know. But it's all futile because there's always another competitor. You're never done fighting. If you get the title, that means that you got to defend that title. And that means eventually you're going to get old enough to where you can't defend it anymore. That's our days are like dust. And so this vision that Daniel is given is given at a specific time. And I want you to remember, last week I mentioned that from this point on, basically these visions, he tells us when they happened, but they're not in chronological order. So in the scheme of Daniel chapter 7, he's already laid out these four kingdoms that will happen leading up to the Antichrist, leading up to the coming of Jesus. But in the meantime, he gets another vision and it's kind of like we're going backwards a little bit and go, okay, let's get some more specifics about these kingdoms. And many of the t most of the time, you guys might have been thinking, like, where did he get all these details last week? Because I didn't make a whole lot of scripture references. Well, Daniel actually gets visions that give us more information about Daniel chapter 7. So in chapter 8, he gets another vision, and it says, in the third year of King Belshazzar, 
Well, the first vision we read last week was a vision in the first year of Belshazzar. So this is just two years later. He's given another vision, and it appeared to him, to Daniel, after the one that appeared to him the first time, chapter 7. And he says, I saw in the vision, and so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, or the city, which is in the province of Elam. What you need to know about Shushan, or Susa, is it's about 200 miles south of, of Babylon, where Belshazzar was. So there he is having this vision, and somehow he recognizes he's in Shushan during the vision. And he's near the river Uli. So as he's there, he gets this vision, and he looked up and he sees this animal, this ram with two, two horns, and they were high. But one was higher than the other, and the two horns excuse me, were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So it's like he had two horns grow, but one of them grew slower than the other. It was, you know, one popped up right away. It's like uh, kids when they're growing up, and, you know, you get the, your, your new teeth, and they crumb, come in at different rates, and, of course, kids make fun of them, right? But when they grow in, they grow in completely most of the time. Well, this ram had one horn grow up really quick, and the other one kind of was a late bloomer. And, and these are a sign of the, the silver chest that was found in the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. You had the gold head, and then you had the silver, which I found out last night, silver is the opposite of gold. Sorry, that's an inside story. We were playing catchphrase. Anyway, <laughs> but we knew what you meant. And, and um, as these two horns are growing, their two legs just like the kingdom that came after Nebuchadnezzar, the silver breast or chest and arms, meaning a split. There's two kingdoms that kind of come into one, and we know that they're the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire started with Darius the Mede, and then later the Persians came in, and they were the stronger of the two, but they reigned this kingdom seemingly together. But there was one that was more prominent leader. And so in this chapter, we see it as a ram with two horns. And remember, we talked about these horns as pictures of strength. If you looked at a ram, if it's only got one horn, it's not as strong as the one with two horns because they protect the head when they ram against one another. So he's in Shushan. Why does he tell us this? Why does he tell us that the vision is in Shushan? Well, it seems here in verse 1 and 2, as he receives the vision, it's about 551 B.C., the third year of Belshazzar, before Daniel 5, which was the handwriting on the wall, before Belshazzar had the kingdom taken from him and given to the Medes. So in verse 2, he received it in Shushan, which was about 200 miles south of Babylon. And this city becomes the capital of the Medo-Persia Empire. So he's getting this vision about the Medo-Persia Empire in what would eventually be the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is where the goat, or the, excuse me, the ram, is going to essentially have his headquarters. The headquarters is not going to be in Babylon, which was a great city. It's actually going to be in Shushan. So God gives him the vision in this place, basically telling him this is where the headquarters will be for this new kingdom that's going to overtake Babylon. This is amazing. And so it's not a coincidence that Daniel gets the vision here. But then in verse 3 and 4, we have the ram. 
two horns, the Medes and the Persians, and they stood above the Medes in strength, the Persians did. And the king and his armies, they pushed, well, we didn't read that verse yet, but in verse 3 and 4, verse 4 says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him. Remembering that animals are really these figureheads or these visions about these kingdoms. And so as this ram is expanding his territory, if you will, he's going to the east, excuse me, the west, the north, and the south. But he's not going east because that's where he's coming from. So this kingdom is being expanded in these three directions and not to the east because it's already got its territory here. So as it's expanding its kingdom, what it says about this kingdom, this ram, is that, is that it, as it was traveling in these different directions, there was no one that could deliver any of its victims from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So this Persian empire, pictured in the last vision as a lumbering bear, but now we see it as a ram, is expanding his territory and no one can stop it. It's an unstoppable force. So as it's expanding its kingdom, no one can resist it. It doesn't have to defend its title because it is the man. It's the ram, but it's the man. And every kingdom that it goes up against, it squashes. It knocks it over with extreme force. And so we know this is this kingdom of Medo-Persia. But in verse 5, I was considering, and suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth. So it comes from a great distance, and it comes without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So if you picture a goat coming a great distance, and it's not touching the ground, if something's running really fast, you would say it's flying. You know, uh, Stephen Persley was running at state this weekend. I guarantee some people that saw him, if you passed anybody, they were like, that guy's flying. He's going really quickly. He's going so quickly, it didn't look like the goat was even touching the ground. If you've ever seen old westerns where they have these chases with horses, it looks like their, their legs are just going and going and going, but they're never really touching the ground, it seems. And so that's what he says here. It's moving very quickly. It says, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. Now remember, no one's been able to defeat this Medo-Persian army. Then all of a sudden, out of the west, comes this he-goat, this male goat that is coming with determination. What we're going to find out is he's full of rage. And if you've ever had goats, I don't know if anybody in here has goats. We had goats. They're mean, and they're cantankerous, and they are stubborn. I think that you should actually call a a goat stubborn more than you should a mule. Because we used to keep goats. We had two male goats which was dumb because they both stunk and they beat each other up all the time. But we used them as weed eaters. And so we would put them on a chain. We would chain them to a tree and let them eat all the weeds. And they would eat thorns and anything that was in their path. And then you'd move them to the next tree. And then they would go around that. That's why you had to use a chain because they would eat the rope. They're just ornery and they would smell horrible. But sometimes you'd have to move them across. And I'm going to stand up for this. 
Because we thought as young men, my brother and I, dad would say, go move the goat. And be like, okay, we'll go grab the, the leash. And we'll just, you know, move them along. No, he didn't want to move. And they would dig in their heels so much and their hooves would split. You were not moving those things. And so we would grab them by the horns and for some dumb reason, get in front of them. And then we would pull. You can imagine this. I'm as tall as I've ever been. And I'm the tallest one in my family. So picture me with like a foot and a half less, which is like my sophomore year of high school. And I'm pulling on this thing and its heels are digging in. And, it, and then eventually you could feel it. It was going to change direction. Okay, now I'll go. So then you're like, whoa. And then it would start ramming at you. So you'd hold on for dear life, essentially, is the idea. They're ornery. So this goat is determined. And when a goat is determined, you're not going to stop it. They can climb anything. They can eat anything. And like I said, they stink. So here comes this goat. And he's coming at this ram that no one has been able to defeat. And this goat approaches the ram, and it says he has one horn. Now, I'm picturing more of a unicorn. I'm not, it says it's between his eyes. So you can imagine going against a ram with another ram. He's got two horns. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But in between his horns is a gap. And this one horn's going to come in and pulverize this ram and basically break off both horns. Now, this is just an analogy. The two horns are the Medes and the Persians working together but if you can divide those horns and break them off, their kingdom can't stand. A country divided against itself cannot stand, right? So here comes this goat, and as he comes in and waylays the ram, um, it says there, He came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. A power of a ram is in his horns. Remove his horns, and he's just another goat. He's just another sheep. He, he can't do anything to defend himself. Another ram challenges a ram that has no horns. It's over. Because as soon as they butt heads, he's going to be feeling it. Those horns protect him. There is strength. It says, They broke his horns, and there was no power on the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground, and then he stomped all over him. He trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So this ram that was once a prominent kingdom, no one could be delivered from it. This goat comes in, destroys him, and no one can deliver this ram from this goat. This goat is now the new defending champion. And so we have these two kingdoms that have come to butt heads, if you will. Therefore, verse 8, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this, this goat that comes out of the west is what we know from history to be Alexander the Great. And we're going to see that in uh, chapter 8, verse 20. But what I want to point out to you is that these two kingdoms uh, were man's kingdoms. They're the first of the four. And they are not eternal kingdoms. They're ones that, that have weaknesses. The ram has a weakness. This goat has a weakness. He seemingly comes in quick, destroys the Medio-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great of the Greek Empire, 
and he takes over the helm of leadership. And when he does that, even he, being great strength, greater than the kingdom before him, is susceptible to falling. So what we know about Alexander the Great is that he defeated the known world at that time, every kingdom, in 12 years. He's running across the ground at great distances, and his army was that. It was quick. The one who gets there the fastest with the most firepower can win. That's, that's army battle strategy. So Alexander the Great had that. He was a conqueror, and he died at the age of 33. Twelve years of conquering the world, and it's said of him that once he conquered all of the known world, he laid his, hands and his head in his hands, and he weeped because there was no other kingdoms to conquer. That was the only thing that made him sad. What am I going to do with my time now? What am I going to do? Well, he could have invested in his kingdom, but in his sorrow, he got in a drunken stupor one day. He stayed drunk for a long time, and at the end of it, he got a fever, and he died. This great military leader, this king that was destroying all the kingdoms of the day, uh, was susceptible to a weakness, and that weakness was his health. He, he's just a, a human, and so it's interesting to me that God used him. So this morning, rather than going into the four leaders that came up after his death that turned into four different nations, what I want to do is talk about these two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian Empire, which had King Cyrus at the helm, and Alexander the Great and his kingdom. Because what we see is two kingdoms that were bent on their own power and their own authority and their own dominion but what we don't see is behind the scenes, God's using these two kingdoms to actually prepare the way for the gospel. He's using these ungodly nations that were bent on destruction and power and prominence to actually pave the way so that he could bring forth the king of kings for our salvation. And so <clears throat> in 5 through 8, we have the rise and the fall of Alexander the Great. He came from the west without touching the ground. He came quickly. He's pictured as an angry goat. He extended his empire much further than Cyrus, who was the king of the Medo-Persian empire, ever did. And then he died. And that, and, um, but before he died, Alexander the Great played a huge role in uniting the east and the west. He was from the west. The Persian empire was primarily of the east. And he brought these two nations together, essentially in one of the first versions of a one-world government. He extended Greek culture and the language everywhere that he went, which is interesting because the common language of Greek would eventually be what the New Testament was spread with. The Greek language was kind of like English is, or at least we think English is, in the known world. Many people know the, world, the, the English language, and so we can go a lot of places and talk to them in that language. But in the day that Jesus came, Greek was prominent, and many nations knew it because of the Greek influence in all those nations. Cyrus had a policy of kindness towards those nations and peoples that he conquered, and he brought a sense of brotherhood beyond national boundaries, which is helpful because we start to see that we're all people. We're human beings made in the image of God. Maybe we could learn some things in our own nation because of that. His contributions would ultimately be completed by the Romans, 
who actually built roads that would go from nation to nation. Picture an interstate, if you will, like we have. You know, we kind of take for granted that I can get in my car and I can drive from one end of the United States to the other on roads that are connected. In the days before the Persian and um, uh, Greco and then the Roman empires, there weren't roads. You couldn't just jump on a road and drive to another country. You had to find a way to transfer from one border to the other, and then there might be a completely different mode of transportation. And so when the Romans came along, they built Roman roads, and they were actually able to uh, bring people across boundaries, which paved the way, no pun intended, for people to share ideas. And ideas are what move people. Ideas are what give us commonality in thoughts and in vision. And so God had this idea to die in the place of sinners. And when he brought Jesus on the scene, he did it at just the right time so that we could spread the gospel easily through transportation, through a common language, and through people that were all interconnected governmentally. And so the Romans built common roads, bridges, and they enabled people to travel and share their ideas. And they had a common law. And this common law kept nations under control. And their legions, picture the Roman soldiers, these Roman legions, enforced the law with an iron fist. They were the ones that kept law and order. All of this contributed to the taking of the gospel message throughout the entire world at the time. If you don't have Roman soldiers... You don't have the brutality that killed Jesus, and you don't have him dying in our place. And so all of these wicked empires, if you will, led way to God's ultimate salvation. There's beauty even in these crazy nations. So turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes to the Galatian believers much, much later. He says, I say that the heir, an heir being someone who takes on uh, what you have left them, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave. Though he's master of all, but he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But the main verse was in verse 4. He says, When the fullness of times had come, God sent forth his son. So why didn't God just send Jesus right after the fall? Because he was preparing the way so that people would recognize through the giving of the law through Moses that God has a holy standard. And they would struggle with trying to keep that standard all the way up through these kingdoms, to the point that the nation of Israel was actually in bondage to the Babylonian government, and then the Medo-Persians 
And the beauty of that is, is that when they were being punished for the rebellion against God's law, God, through these wicked nations that had enslaved them, was actually in the midst of delivering them. Does that make sense? They were in a, in a spiritual timeout, if you will. Why were the Israelites even in Babylon in the first place? Why was Daniel there? Well, because the Israelites, the Jewish people, were given a law by God, and it was his standard. And that law said, every seven days, you take a day of rest. And it also said, every seven years, you don't work, you don't plant, you don't harvest. You know what they did for 70 years? They never once took a year off. Why? If God would say to you, hey, guess what? You get a free year every seven years. Many of us would say, oh, well, then I'm going to take a year off, right? If we owned our own business, hey, you get to take a year off. You don't have to plant. You don't have to harvest. You just hang out with your family. You trust the Lord to provide enough in that year to provide for the next two years. As you wait on the year after that, you're going to plant another crop. But my point being is they didn't take that year for 70 years. So God told them, you're going to go to captivity for 70 years. You owe me 70 years times seven. So 490 years, he took them off to captivity. For those 490 years, God was also preparing the way so they could be brought back to Israel, brought back so they could build back the temple, brought back so they could restore their nation. And let me submit to you on that 490th year, he brought them back. Who did he bring them back through? There was a king by the name of Cyrus in the kingdom of Persia. And this king was kind of soft towards those that he conquered. And 200 years before the book of Daniel, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And that prophet spoke of a man by the name of Cyrus, who would eventually be the king. Didn't exist. Isaiah wrote it down. So turn with me to Isaiah. Um, Isaiah chapter... 41. Isaiah chapter 41. In verse 2. 41 verse 2. It says this. Isaiah wrote down by the inspiration of the Lord. He says, Who raised up one from the east? Remember, we talked about how the king of Persia came from the east and joined up with the Medes. Who raised up for one from the east, who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? In other words, who gave him the ability to defeat these kingdoms? Verse 3, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. Basically saying, I'm the one that raised him up. I'm the one that raised up this king that would come from the Persians and, and join up with the Medes. But Okay, so that's kind of neat. But turn to Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 28. This is where it gets a little more specific. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, 
you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord his anointed, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So, the Israelites are in captivity. There's these nations that rise up. The Israelites are essentially under the dominion of these other nations. And in the meantime, God, 200 years previous, said, I'm going to raise up a king by the name of Cyrus. I'm going to give him authority. And as a As he has authority, I'm going to give him the ability to send you back into the land, to restore Jerusalem, to build the temple, and actually to raise up your nation once again. (coughs) Cyrus has no interest in this. It could only be the hand of the Lord. So here's my question for you. If they went to captivity because they were disobedient, why in the world would God bless them and restore them as a nation. If they were in captivity because of their own wrongdoing, why would God bring them back? Because there's people, because he promised, and because he loves them. God shows his love towards us in that while we were yet sinning against him, that's when Christ died and provided a way for us to be delivered into the promised land of salvation. That's the tie together. They didn't deserve for God to provide a way for them to come back to the land he gave them. They, they completely took the blessing God gave them, and they worshiped it instead of him. How many of you guys have ever given your kids something, and right after you give it to them, they start enjoying it, but they are more disobedient than they were in the first place? That we worship the things God gives us rather than being obedient to our parents and the nation of Israel were the same. God gave them this amazing land to live in. They disobeyed everything he said. He disciplined them. And while they were in timeout, he was already blessing them and loving them and being faithful and getting ready to bring them back to the gift he first gave them. So for you and I as Christians, this applies because God has provided a way of salvation that we never deserved. God didn't save us because we deserved it. He saved us because he just straight out loves us. He loves the whole world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, verse 17 says, but that through him the world would be delivered and saved. I've often quoted the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And many times people throw that story up in the air and they say, well, God's not a God of judgment. He didn't judge the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. But what you need to know is that the people that grabbed this woman in the act of adultery and brought her to be stoned to death were obeying God. God's righteous judgment is that anyone caught in adultery in the nation of Israel, they would be stoned to death for doing so. And and the woman knew that. 
She knew that she was toast. Jesus forgave her, and he didn't condemn her because he was getting ready to go and die for her sins. He was pronouncing that. Neither do I condemn you. Because he wasn't willing that anybody would be condemned, even though they deserved to be condemned. God's judgment is righteous. It is right. He has the right to murder his enemies because he told us what was right and wrong. He's given us a conscience. He's given us the breath in our lungs. He's not going to force us to obey, but he loves us enough to tell us and to discipline us so that we might repent. And so, I just love this story. Here we have these ungodly rulers. God is using them to bless his people. How many times has something ungodly or bad happened in your life? And God's actually going to use it to bless you. Romans chapter 8 says, um, well, let's turn there. I was going to misquote it. I'd rather not. I might get a little disciplined myself. <clears throat> Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God did it and we get to reap the benefit. So this morning, as we consider God's uh, not judging us, God's sparing us, uh, we take communion. And I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about communion.